this cannabinoid, it hits the same receptor in your brain that THC hits in order to cause the munchies, but it blocks it. And so it gives you the anti-munchies targeted to hit just that craving part. Hey there, welcome to the Biohacker Babes podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Renee, a certified nutritional consultant with a master's degree in nutrition. What's up? And I'm Lauren, functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner and check movement specialist. We're sisters and we're joining forces to empower you to become your own biohacker and upgrade your life. Our mission is to provide actionable steps so you can optimize your health, strengthen your intuition, and support your body's natural healing abilities. Because life is too short to not feel your best every single day. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Welcome to episode 177 of the Biohacker Babes. My name is Renee, tuning in with my sister Lauren across the country. Hi, hello. I'm in New York and um Wow, 177. I feel like we're getting up there. Oh, yeah. Getting old. <laughs> <laughs> we are kicking off the new year with, oh gosh, we have so many fun episodes for you this month. Really trying to help you all create some new healthy goals for the year and how to implement all of them and optimize your health for the year. So today we have Dr. Dalton Combs. He is the CEO and founder of Temper, and he has a really unique background. I think that will be really helpful for you to break down your healthy habits and your healthy goals for the year. And I think figure out like what are the main drivers and what's missing to the puzzle of how you can do this and optimize your health. So he brings a really great scientific background and some really practical tips, which we really appreciate. And I just wanted to share a little bit more about temper before we bring him on because we learned a couple of things about it, but just a basic overview is there is a fasting coaching program. So when you sign up, you get partnered with a coach, you use the app and they help to determine the best fasting protocol for you. So maybe it's just intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating, but they're going to work with you based off of your goals, your health history, all of these things. And they also help you kind of score your meals. Uh, Dalton gets into this, which is really interesting. So like looking at, are you truly hungry? Are you craving? Are you just not you know, feeling satisfied from your meals, all these different factors. So the one-on-one coaching is really going to be helpful for anyone that's struggling with some of those issues. And then along with that, there is a product, there are the mints. He'll explain the ingredients and how that works, but the mints go along to help you be able to fast for longer. All right. Enough of me chatting away. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I just, I think the mints are really exciting and I love that you know, you'll hear this in the episode. We ask him at the end, can you get the mints without the coaching? And he said, no. So of course there's no magic pill, right? Like you cannot just take this compound, which is very powerful. They call it the anti-munchy compound because it's working on the uh, cannabinoid receptors. And we can get into exactly what's that, what that's doing in the brain. I love his neuroscience approach. It's all about the brain. <laughs> I think he said at one point, like, it is actually in your head or, you know, we can't overlook what's in your head because there's so much happening. Um, and he just has, does a fantastic job at breaking all of those things down. And I think just something as simple as hunger, which we think is just one kind of category is so nuanced. And so the coaching can really take it to the next level. If you feel confused by your hunger, by your cravings and don't know the difference between the two, and there's even more than just those two. But lots of fun stuff to dig in today on the neuroscience side, on like the behavioral side. So happy January and uh, happy New Year's resolutions. Hopefully they're going well. And if not, this is an awesome solution to dive into. Yes, definitely perfect timing for this one. All right, a little bit more about Dr. Dalton Combs. So as I said before, he is the CEO and founder of Temper. Uh, His passion is understanding the causes and consequences of human behavior. First, as a neuroeconomics PhD researcher at University of Southern California and author of Digital Behavioral Design. Second, as a tech startup founder applying cutting-edge neuroscience, Dalton explores how the brain mechanisms that underlie value, reward, and motivated behavior can be used to help people form healthy habits and live better lives. Dalton leads temper with an unrivaled understanding of the brain, the future of technology, and the interaction between the two. I also... Thought that was really interesting, but that he shared that his, I think his thesis was about dopamine. So he studied mm-hmm. dopamine for like six years. So I'm sure there's more we could pick his brain on, which is just so fascinating. Yeah, this is a great conversation and we think you'll enjoy it. Let's dive in. 
Welcome, Dr. Dalton, to the Biohacker Babes. <laughs> Thanks for joining Great us to today. Here. Yeah, thank yeah. you for having me. Yeah, I'm so happy to have you. I think, um, as I was saying before I hit record, this is the perfect timing for this episode because when it is going live, it will be mid-January. And this is the prime time for people to be making healthy changes. I'm sure people listening have some New Year's resolutions going. Um, hopefully, they're still going at this point mid-January. But I think... The start of the year, people know what they need to do for the most part. I mean, of course, there's some nutrition and fitness myths maybe we could bust, but most people know what they need to do. But I think the average New Year's resolution falls off by like Valentine's Day. It just mm -hmm. doesn't stick, right? And we know that the long-term healthy habits and the consistency is really where we see the long-term results. So with your incredible background, I would love to kick it off with what is so hard for people? Why do most people struggle to make the change long-term? Yeah, that's a great way to, to frame the problem. Because you're right that most people can get on the internet and figure out what behavior it is they want to have, and like what habits they want to have. Uh, but it's the, it's the execution and the consistency that gets hard, which uh, to some people doesn't make sense, right? Like for some people, some people have this way of thinking where they think, oh, if I want to do something, I should just be able to do it, right? I should be able to flip the switch in my head and implement this new lifestyle as long as I want it, it should happen. The advice I give to people about how to implement their habits is two things. One, first is going from this goal that you have for yourself to the specific actions that you want to implement. So eating healthier, eating right, going to the gym, that's not specific enough. Uh, those sorts of ambitions, you can't implement them because it's not like it's not specific enough. So go from those big goals down to habits. And what a habit is, it's best to formulate it in this format. So I will do X in condition Y. Okay. So as long as you can get it down to that level of specificity, like now you're off to a good start. So that's thing one is go from go to the gym more often to I'm going to go to the gym before work on Tuesdays. Right. And so that's like, I'm going to do X under condition Y. And so it's really defined, really clear what condition Y should be. So it's both easier to implement when you're making a plan and also easier for your subconscious to incorporate. So that's advice number two is how do we go from a plan I can execute to a plan that I can hand off to my subconscious, right? And so that's the, the habit handoff. And the way that works is this consistency of always doing X in context Y and then praising yourself a little bit afterwards. So let's take one of the common examples is flossing, because it's like an easy to study behavior. So people do study flossing a lot. If you want to pick up flossing, a good way to say, oh, man, I wish I flossed more, right? That's a bad goal. A good goal would be I'm going to floss every night, first thing when I get in the shower. Let's say if you're a nighttime shower person. So that's really clear. And then like, let's say you don't have time, right? Like you're really pressed for time. What should you do? How can you cheat? You don't skip the action. You figure out what the smallest version of the action you can do is. So like you floss one tooth. Okay. You get, if you're really pressed for time, you get the floss out, you floss one tooth, and then you get on with your day, but you leave that little anchor point in your schedule because that makes it easier the next time you come around. You didn't totally miss the habit. So you didn't undermine that automatic subconscious part of the habit formation process. You just like did the minimum version of it to get it implemented into your routine. And then afterwards, after you floss your one tooth, you give yourself a little, yeah, like you give yourself just a little pat on the back. Yeah, exactly. And so that's, that's, that's basically the formula, right? So step one, break down your goal, your ambition into in situation X, I will do Y. And then Find that minimum viable version of it that you can praise yourself for and do everything you can to never miss the minimal version. And minimal can be ridiculously small, right? It can be ridiculously small, but hitting that minimal version keeps the habit alive and keeps the habit loop, keeps your subconscious learning and training and makes it easier the next time. I love that. I think you're hitting on two really important gaps when it comes to health behaviors and goals, people are missing that contingency plan, or you called it an anchor. It's, I think of atomic habits. Everyone learns like we build the anchor yep. and then you can build yep. from there. And then also the win, which so many clients I think are just 
people, humans in general, we miss the celebration, the win. We're already wired to think, what did I do wrong? We're already, we like jump to punishing ourselves or judging or like, we just, yeah. we didn't do it well. And so I might as well just keep not doing it well rather than celebrating. Yeah. I, I think like that dopamine feedback loop, the reward pathway, like giving yourself a, a win. It's just so powerful. And a lot of people overlook that. And then it seems like the motivation will probably go down if you skip that part. Do you find that? That's true? exactly right. So the the dopamine. So I've got I got my PhD studying dopamine. That's in the that's cool. in my thesis. Yeah, oh, it's a great awesome. great molecule. Got to spend six years working with it, awesome. and that's exactly right. So dopamine both mediates this sense of accomplishment, right? Like more dopamine right now feels good, and then in the long term, dopamine mediates wanting. So it feels good in the moment, and then it drives wanting in the long term. So this distinction between liking and wanting. So right now you like dopamine and the next time you come around on the habit loop, that dopamine that you got last time is going to make you want it more mm. on the second loop. And so it's like a flywheel that you can keep kicking little bits of dopamine and get that flywheel going and create a really strong want inside yourself. The big thing I think helps a lot of people crystallize this is an addiction, a habit, a routine, they're all fundamentally the same thing. At the neuroscience level, those are all the same mechanism. An addiction is when it's gotten out of hand and it's become socially destructive and starts interfering, interfering with other parts of your life. But the mechanism that causes drug addiction is the same mechanism that helps people build a habit for brushing their teeth or build a habit for going to the gym. And, you know, like the, a gym that can get out of hand, right? That can become an unhealthy behavior. But it's that same mechanism that starts off the loop that pushes the loop a little too far. I have to say, I love that you do the flossing analogy because I'm definitely going to make my husband listen to this because this is like a constant battle. I, same same here. Yeah. <laughs> I I mean, I remember probably 20 years ago when I hated flossing and our, our mom and dad, um, our dad's a dentist and our mom is a dental hygienist. So like no excuses here, but okay. it took me some yeah. time, but now I, I literally floss every night and I don't even think about it. I think like you said, it's in that subconscious routine. I don't even think about it, but my husband, it's like, it's like pulling teeth to get him to floss like once a week. Well, um, that's the alternative, right? You floss or they pull the teeth. Yes. There you go. You just need there the one go. lucky tooth to get the dopamine. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm going to teach him that the one tooth hit. Yeah. And on, on the topic of the win, an even better thing than like the, the celebration ritual is if you can find a way, find part of it that you enjoy intrinsically. So if you're at the gym, find a way, find some part of it where you like enjoy that experience for its own sake. So it might be attending to the way that your muscles feel after a particular movement. Uh, it might be attending to the way your muscles feel during a movement. It might, it might be checking yourself out in the mirror on your way out of the building. But find something that you like, that some some part of the activity that you intrinsically enjoy. So, like when flossing, people are always thinking like, "This sucks," but I'm doing it for my future self, right? That's not good. That's not a recipe for success. What can you find in the flossing experience that like you really enjoy? You know, for me, it's definitely like I find that piece of food that's been hiding and it like pops out. Like, yeah, I got it. Right. Like that <laughs> so of its own is like such a rewarding experience. Get out. The excavation. <laughs> yeah. Like and so like what what is it in this activity that you want to do for your long-term self? What part of it does your like right now self enjoy and like attend to that? Pay attention to it, and that will help entrench the habit. You certainly have given me food for thought because I haven't found something that I enjoy about flossing, but I used to feel the same way about uh, brushing my teeth. I didn't enjoy it. I'm like, oh, this is the longest two minutes of my life. But now I habit stack it with stretching okay. and I enjoy those two minutes a lot. And it makes me not rush through my, my brushing. So now I'm like, hopefully our audience is thinking this too. Like the wheels are starting to spin. Like, how do I find these little joy moments? I'm curious about the fear factor, if we're just going to continue on this flossing analogy, like for me, I floss because I notice when I go to the dentist or go to my mom, my uh -huh. hygienist, she's like, if you don't floss, or if I haven't flossed diligently, she's like, see, this is what happens when you don't floss. Yeah. So there is fear for me, whereas my fiance happens to have like really great teeth and can get away with not flossing. So he doesn't have a fear factor that can motivate him. Do you find that there are like two large camps here? Some people need that fear or other people can find it elsewhere? 
the like the tiger in your brain is one way I think about this. So it's like it's something you're afraid of that's not in the room right now. But this is like humans are really good at imagining situations, right? So you can like close your eyes and you can imagine a tiger in the room. It's like it's not in the room, but like yeah. it's the tiger in your head. Always being uh, Yeah. And yeah. this is a root of beginning of an unhealthy relationship with anxiety. It's like to getting too much of a relationship of, with the tiger in your head. And it's also like the hopeful self, right? And so I think of those as narrative motivation. So those are motivating because of the story that they help us tell about ourselves. And the habit part of your brain is totally immune to narrative motivation. So the planner, the planner lives for narrative motivation, right? When you're sit, sitting down and writing, like writing your own story, like authoring yourself, that sort of narrative self really loves these narrative motives of like, I did this because I was afraid and I wanted this for myself and I was afraid of this because as a child, I saw this in my parents and I didn't want that, but I wanted the, all of that, that narrative self is really great for the planner. And then the planner has to support the habit self, like the right now self, who's interested in immediate pleasure and immediate pain is like what motivates the right now self. And so the planner has to make a plan for the right now self. Yeah. I feel like I'm such a planner with everything, but that does kind of resonate with as much as I can plan, there's still sometimes like in the moment where I'm like, oh, I want that dopamine hit. And I kind of say, screw it to whatever I planned to do. Interesting. I'm curious with as far as like eating and snacking for people, like what is going on in the brain there where people are like, I'm not going to snack today, right? I'm just going to eat three meals. I'm not going to snack today. And then they walk by the M&M bowl. What's going on in their brain? They walk yeah, by so marketing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's that it's that same habit loop, right? So that habit of do X in Y, they've learned not from a plan, but like they've learned when I walk by this table, I'm going to grab a handful of gummy bears. Or when I get in the car, I'm going to, for me, it's gum, right? I'm going to chew a piece of gum. But a lot of people build maybe a smoking or a snacking habit when they get in the car on the commute to work. I'm always going to stop at Starbucks. And they didn't plan those habits for themselves. They didn't have what we might call an implementation intention. So they didn't, they didn't do this planning step, but they still, their subconscious still learned that routine of in circumstance X do Y. Snacking and food behaviors in particular, again, one of the challenges is I want to snack less is like not implementable, right? That's not specific enough. And even I'm not going to snack today is like not implementable enough. It's, like, let's say the goal is like, I don't want to snack in the afternoon, right? Like that's the planner self has set that goal. Well, then you have to look in to what is, what are the problems that the execution self, the right now self is going to encounter. So there's the snack bowl, right? And so you have to, let's say the snack bowl is at the, uh, walking by the kitchen. What is your new X? So when I walk through the kitchen, I'm going to do what? You can't do nothing. Doing nothing is never enough, right? Like you can keep walking, but that's not nothing. Like continuing to walk through the kitchen is an active action. You can get a glass of water. You can grab a piece of gum. You can count all of the things in the fridge. I don't know. I'm just thinking of alternatives, but you have to have like a specific alternative plan for what you're going to do when you're in a situation where your habitual self, your execution self would snack. So what is the substitute? What's the substitute behavior for the habit that you're trying to break or the habit that you're trying to replace? You can't, this, this is where one situation where like our language works against us. You can never break a habit. You can only replace it, right? Mm -hmm. So like the planner mm -hmm. self wants to break habits. The execution self is not down for that game. The execution self can learn to replace a habit, but like cannot learn to break a habit. Mm. Oh, okay. Wow. And also when I say that, I mean that at like the synapse level. So like at in the basal ganglia, so it's like core part of your brain where your, all your habits live. Once these habit loops form, there is no erasing them. We have found nothing that we can do to like a rodent so we can see this, the habit, like it's a, it's a specific series of synapses in the brain. We can, we can watch it form. And then once it's formed, no one's come up with the technique for getting rid of these things once they've formed. All you can do is build a stronger one that overwhelms it. So oh, the wow. hamster wheel won't stop, but you could put like a different 
cadence or flavor or something else on the wheel. You have to yeah. replace it. You can't avoid it. And I guess to clarify, I'm, I'm thinking. So you can fully it. avoid it. Like you can, if, if like do X and circumstance Y, you can rearrange your life so you never find yourself in circumstance Y ever again, which is a big part of like addiction therapy for alcoholics or drug users, right? It's like, do not talk to your old friends. Do not go to the bar that you used to go to. Don't even go to the part of town where your dealer lives. Like you just need to cut yourself off from Y because if you find yourself in Y, X is going to happen. I'm glad you brought Mm. that up. So I'm interested in what's happening in the brain there. And I'm going to use an example of a client that I had that would duct tape his kitchen to avoid going there during the night. So 6 p.m., literally like physically close off the kitchen so he couldn't go in. You know, certainly that's a strategy, but what's happening in the brain? Are we, is that a healthy relationship or are we just avoiding it until another challenge comes? Like you mentioned with addiction is just avoiding the dealer, avoiding that street, or is it going to pop up an, at another time in your life because it hasn't fully been resolved? This question. It's a good question. It works for as long as it works. And it's like immediately actionable. And in some ways it's easier than forming a replacement habit. Forming a replacement habit can be a more robust solution, especially when like the context is unavoidable. So for a lot of people like smoking when they get in the car, yeah, or the kitchen, like you can't just never go in a car again. Right. So like for people who like in their twenties, they learned that they always have a smoke when they get in the car. You can't avoid cars the rest of your life. You need to build a substitution habit. And the same thing for the kitchen, but you can, you can like kitchen at 6 PM. Like you can like, can you kind of cordon off like, okay, I'm, I'm going to stop experiencing why in these circumstances. And when I have to experience why I'm going to have good substitute behaviors, but they they can also work together. Oh, so maybe the conditional is enough. If it's specific at 6 PM, I'm going to stop. This is just a window of time. I can see that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I keep thinking to like caffeine addiction. I will say like, I, I go through waves, right? Lauren knows this. I go through waves of like loving caffeine. And then when I have been most successful getting off of the caffeine is when I replace it with like a mud water or like a mushroom something. And it'll last for a little bit. And then I have like one shot of espresso and I'm like, oh, I forgot how good the coffee feeling is. But the times that I have said, I'm just not going to have anything in the morning. I'm just going to drink water that lasts like a day. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It's the ones where I have like a replacement that I can go much longer. So very interesting. Yeah. And the much longer is like a good way to think about it too, because there's Every day you wake up with, and this is from the psychology and neuroscience literature. We don't know exactly what this is, but like it works in the psychology model. Like you wake up every day with a fixed amount of decision juice, okay? Or like executive control juice. We don't know why sleeping restores it. We don't really know what it is in the brain, but like this model explains a lot of people's behavior. So like all the psychologists talk this way that like you have your your morning decision juice. And then every time you don't do the automatic thing, you burn a little bit of that. You use a little bit of that juice to fight automatic behaviors. Or if you're in a situation where there is no automatic behavior, so like you're looking at a really, you know, the, looking at the Cheesecake Factory menu, there is like no automatic thing. It's just this enormous menu and you have to mm-hmm. exert a lot of juice to make a choice. And then at the end of the day, like, you're out of juice, which is why most people like their most difficult habits occur at the end of the day. It's because they were able to use their juice earlier in the day to fight off other habits, which might, you know, in some way be a harder habit. Those morning habits might be harder, but they still have the juice in the morning to fend them off. And then by the time they get to the evening, they're out of juice. Yeah. I see that a lot with people. Yeah. All the time. And I think at least from a nutritional standpoint, sometimes people that experience a lot of hunger or cravings at night, it's just because they didn't get enough nutrition in earlier in the day. But obviously there's more from a neuroscience perspective happening. So how do we make, should you just put yourself in a position where you can make those decisions earlier in the morning? And I guess, what are those morning habits? Yeah, so the mistake that a lot of people make is, you know, sometimes it's right to focus on the evening habit itself. But sometimes you can make just as much progress on the evening habit by focusing on making your morning habits or your afternoon habits easier. And then you'll still have decision juice left, which will make the evening habit easier to manage. So those are difficult to spot for people to spot in themselves. But when you can find one where, you know, if you work with a coach, you can find these sort of situations of like, tell me about the rest of your day. 
And when you have sort of intense temptations or when you feel like you're fighting to make the right decision, and then you can focus on those and like fix those habits and then it makes the evening ones easier. Yeah. I've seen something that works well with clients. Like say, for example, if they, they always have business dinners or something, they're always going out to eat at night and they're faced with the cheesecake factory menu or something crazy like that is like, yeah, let's how easy and simple and healthy can we get your breakfast and lunch and super nutrient dense, no willpower needed for those meals. And then you're right by dinner, they can make a little bit better of an option or decision with that. So curious, how does fasting come into all of this. We know you're a big fan of fasting. And obviously, if you're eating less hours of the day, maybe less hours of the day, you're needing that willpower to figure out what to eat. What's up, biohackers? Renee here. If you are a biohacker who's looking for the newest cutting-edge products to push your brain and body to the outer limits of what's possible, or maybe you're a wellness enthusiast who's looking for a mental upgrade, well, then stop what you're doing. You have to check out Nootopia. It's the most powerful nootropic company on the market today. These nootropic stacks are taking the industry by storm because they're safe, legal, and highly effective. You see, every stack was formulated by a man who's the most advanced brain chemist and nootropics formulator alive today. Uh, we actually had him on the podcast in August of last year. We call him Mr. Newts, and it was a great episode. We took a deep dive, so definitely check that one out. And even better, every formula is customized for you based on your strengths, your weaknesses, and your goals, so you get exactly what you personally need. And it's true that Elon Musk's Neuralink is still a long way off, but Newtopia stacks might be the next best thing. So taking the right formulas at the right times can help you focus intensely, block out distractions, reduce stress and anxiety, enhance your creativity. I personally love these, especially on days where I have a lot of podcasts or writing, or even if I'm going out on the weekend and I just want to have a little boost in energy so I can connect with others. There are just so many great uses for me and I just love it so much. But you'll be amazed how quickly they work. I mean, really within 15 to 30 minutes, you'll start to feel the difference um, and you'll start to notice those mental effects. And guess what? Here's the best part. These formulas come with a full one-year guarantee. So there's zero risk to you if you want to just try them out and see how it goes. So here's the deal. If you feel like you're not fully maximizing your potential, this could be personally and professionally, then you owe it to yourself to at least try Newtopia's formulas. They're, I promise you, a total game changer. All you have to do is head over to newtopia.com slash biohackerbabes and use code biohackerbabes at checkout. That'll get you 10% off your order. And that's newtopia, N-O-O-T-O-P-I-A. So newtopia.com slash biohackerbabes. I will put that link in the show notes for today's episode as well. So it's easy for you to find. And we can't wait to hear your experience with these awesome nootropic stacks. All right, let's get back to the show. Yeah, so that, that is one of the things we'll really like about intermittent fasting is that there are fewer food choices to make. You know, people make hundreds of food choices a day and it can be a lot. So we designed the temper mints work synergistically with the coaching to help people figure out these kinds of habits. So the coaching helps identify these situations. So again, if you're doing intermittent fasting, it starts with, okay, when are you going to be most tempted throughout the day? Like what is going to be the hardest part of that fast? What can we do to make, what can we do right now with the planning self to make it easier on the execution self? And so that's where the coach comes in. And then the mints help with those in the moment cravings and help with the behavior rewriting and building those new habits on top of old habits. And what is your approach to fasting? Because there's such a spectrum where people hear the word fasting. They're like, I can't do a three day yeah. fast. And some people are like, <laughs> yeah. wait, I'm supposed to only eat within 12 hours. You know, there's just like such a, a range and everyone's kind of living in a different place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it definitely sounds easy, right? Like fasting is just don't eat, right? Like what could be easier? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that word covers like a yeah. huge amount of lifestyle, huge number of lifestyles, a lot of different variety. Our main approach from working with clients is, you know, we have a very like, meet them where they are, you know, meet you where you are kind of uh, style. For the majority of customers, we start with just getting snacking under control. So like just focusing on between meal snacking, both because it is a good opportunity for them to learn about themselves and learn about how their behavior works. And because you can't do the longer fast unless you can solve this stuff. So like we usually start with the most common is definitely the after dinner snacking or between meal snacking. And then 
after we do that and people kind of get a sense for their own mind and learn kind of our approach to habits and how we think about behavior change, they'll pick their window. So most of the most of the clients, again, they're doing this sort of time-restricted feeding. So like they're eating every day, but just for a certain time period in that day. And that might be sort of a double breakfast or double dinner sort of setup. Those are the most popular. And then some clients do go for periodic longer fasts, which is you know my main tool. So I do a one week fast twice a year. Mm. Uh, and those, you said a double breakfast. Are you saying breakfast to breakfast and then dinner to dinner? What, what was the double? Yeah. So like for people who do what's called early time restricted feeding is what it's called in the academic literature. And that's usually like you try and get all your calories in, in six hours in the morning. And for most people, that's like two big meals in the morning. Uh, mm. Okay. So like a nuance to OMAD rather than just doing one dinner, you could get I see. Another way to get more yeah. calories in. More yeah, another way to get more calories in. Yeah, if yeah. you if you if you need the you need the nutrition or managing hunger. A lot of people honestly find it like with a double breakfast or a double dinner, they find the second meal quite difficult just to, to eat. Like they're still sure. full. So like mm-hmm. but it, but it's an, a helpful technique for like managing managing appetite. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I always thought the OMAD would be hard to eat that much food in one sitting, but it seems like some men can do that a little bit better than women. So definitely. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of, it's, it's a lot, <laughs> a lot of food. Yeah. Like when you, when you read the academic studies where they do, whether they look at OMAD and especially where they try and do like calorie controlled. So they try and do the same number of calories you'd have in a normal diet, but in, in one sitting, like everyone reports how incredibly difficult it is to get through the meal. Okay. Like every subject is like the, the fullness was way harder to deal with than the hunger. Uh, yeah. And I mean, your okay. digestion really has to be online. You have to have like the bile flow. Otherwise, like good luck. Yeah. yeah. Unless it was just like empty calories, like, yeah. Ice cream or yeah, something. When you're it's sitting not down all to... ice cream and soda in the, right. uh, in the steak in the and broccoli. <laughs> oh, you're like, no more broccoli. <laughs> yeah. I really yeah. want to circle back to the mints because I think the mechanism is really cool. But I think we have to talk about hunger first because that's really, I think, the big challenge for fasting. Yes. People are like, I'm going to feel hunger, which triggers a fight or flight response. It's scary. There's like a huge mental, emotional challenge there. So how do we begin to look at hunger or maybe other side of the spectrum? Some people maybe are not feeling the hunger. Like I have some clients that are unintentionally fasting because they just are so out of touch with their hunger. Yeah. Managing, managing appetite, right? So we use the term appetite to cover a few different things. So there's hunger, fullness, satiety, and craving. So two of those are like a food seeking kind of state. So either hunger or craving and then satiety and fullness on the food avoidant side. So I'll define each of those. And so that, that's the, the sort of psychological model that we teach everyone. So what is hunger? Hunger is those bodily sensations of uh, food seeking. So rumbling in your stomach, that sense of emptiness in your stomach often felt it's often experienced as like a tightness like a knot in your stomach that is how we talk about hunger and then craving is this active food seeking so it's maybe an ideation where you're thinking about a particular food or you're thinking about food in general or thinking about going to the kitchen or it can be a behavior where you're opening every cupboard in the kitchen or you just keep peeking your head into the fridge all of that we call craving. The thing that a lot of people find surprising is that you can have one without the other. Like there's no necessary, and especially when you when academically in the lab, we have people like journal about these. Like you, you probe someone, you send them a text message at some random time and say, right now, score your hunger and score your craving. So you teach them what these two words mean. There's no correlation. Like people can be hungry, but not craving or craving and not hungry, or they can have both or they can have neither there's very weak association. And then on the other side, uh, we have fullness and satiety. So again, fullness is that somatic, those somatic states. My stomach feels distended. My, it's a sense of wholeness in my stomach, a sense of heaviness in my body all over. Those are like the somatic sensations. And then satiety is this cognitive behavioral experience of 
I ate something that is so delicious that like I feel satisfied, right? I'm sure you've had that experience of eating something that is so incredibly flavorful that even if you don't feel full, you feel satisfied. And it's also that behavioral component of a disinterest in food. So like there's still food on the plate, but you're satisfied and like not touching your silverware to go after it. That's satiety. Again, more dissociable than people would imagine. You'd think that those would go together, but I'm sure you've had clients who talk about being full, but not satisfied. And I think most people have had the experience of having of being satisfied, but not feeling full, right? There are certain foods that you eat them and like you can get to satiety. A potato is somewhat famous for this. It has an extremely high satiety per calorie. If you eat potato like an hour later, you're very likely to feel satisfied. The biochemistry of why that happens is not well understood, but potato is incredibly satisfying food. Yeah, I was curious. Um, is it the macronutrients or is it like what's happening <clears throat> with leptin and ghrelin in the brain? We don't know. Like, we don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's, I've it's probably seen some of whole... that research. It's, it's pretty wild. Yeah, potatoes yeah. off the scale. So like we've scored a bunch of foods on this like satiety per calorie and satiety per just gram of food and potatoes is off the scale. Probably a whole number of mechanisms all playing together. But yeah, potatoes are extremely satisfying food. Yeah, I was shocked. Um, it, like it even beat steak, which I think a lot of yeah. us would think like, oh, that would be at the top. But potato was higher than steak. But I yeah, know experientially like protein doesn't always make me feel so satiated. I could, mm -hmm. I, that's like where I see the biggest discrepancy. I feel full after protein. I don't necessarily feel satiated. I mean, unless it's like a really nice steak dinner, it's luxurious and there's some garlic. And there's a potato on the side. Well, there's a potato. Yeah. You got, you got some good, some palm frites going with it. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah that's an interesting okay. breakdown. Yeah. So there's the opening of the book chapter, right? Now, let me actually answer your question. So <laughs> what the mints do is they are, they're a cannabinoid. So they're in the same family of molecule as CBD and THC. They're non-psychoactive, but this cannabinoid, it hits the same receptor in your brain that THC hits in order to cause the munchies, but it blocks it. And so it gives you the anti-munchies for a few hours. Mm. So it is really well targeted to hit just that craving part. So in conversations with our clients, it doesn't hit that sort of gut hunger or that gut fullness, those somatic senses as much but it does a really good job of hitting those cognitive and behavioral things. So of hitting craving and satiety. So people report if they take a mint about 30 minutes for a meal, before a meal, they reach satiety much quicker. So they're more likely mm. to feel satisfied quicker. And then same thing if they have a mint in the afternoon, they find themselves thinking, ideating about food, thinking about food, or going to the kitchen and doing those foraging behaviors less often. Um, so it just tunes your whole mind away from food and also away from habits. It's also being investigated by other groups as a anti-smoking aid. So it focuses your mind and, and also a anti-alcohol addiction tool. And so it focuses your mind away from those automatic cravings uh, for a few hours. Another great plus is it doesn't disrupt sleep, which can be a problem for, you know, a lot of people use caffeine or nicotine to manage cravings, this doesn't disrupt your sleep the way that those do. So it's a good tool for that sort of late day craving, late in the evening craving. Wow. That's really interesting. Could you explain the, the endocannabinoid system for anyone that's not familiar with it? Like we have these receptors all over our body. Can you explain maybe the ancestral component and why they're important? Yeah. So there are many different types of cannabinoid receptor all over your body. The two best understood are called CB1 and CB2. So it's cannabinoid receptor one, cannabinoid receptor two. They were discovered because like they're trying to figure out, okay, what is THC doing? Like THC gets people high. How does that happen? And so that's how they discovered these. So that's why they're named after the cannabinoids, the endocannabinoids. And these, they have a number of different mechanisms. There is no like one grand theory of cannabinoids. So each of the different endocannabinoid systems does something different. BV1 is strongly involved in motivated behavior and motivated learning. So the cravings and couch lock are sort of connected in that way, in that when you get the munchies, it's like this craving for food. 
And when you get couch lock, it's this sort of demotivated state. And so those are both what CB1 activation causes, so uh, THC in cannabis. And then this hits that same receptor in a very targeted way. And then, and then THC like doesn't interact much with CB2, which is the main receptor that CBD activates, which has to do with mm. inflammation and peripheral pain sensation. And so this molecule that we work with, citraverin, it's highly targeted to CB1, but instead of activating it, it blocks it. So it's that same receptor that's responsible for couch lock and responsible for the foggy headedness and the munchies, except it blocks it. So it has like all of the exact opposite effects. So instead of having the munchies, your mind is sort of directed away from food. Instead of being foggy headed, a lot of users report an increased sense of clarity, but not in a coffee kind of way. Like it's not jittery. It's just whatever you can imagine the opposite of foggy headedness. And then the opposite of couch lock, like people feel more goal directed. Uh, for a few hours. Cool. And so the cool. CB1, CB2, very dense throughout the your body, the CB2 all over the place in your peripheral body. And that's why it's really in, involved in inflammation and pain detection. It's everywhere. CB1 is very concentrated in just a few parts of your brain. The hippocampus, which is involved in memory, uh, and then the hypothalamus, which is involved in motivated behavior, including food seeking. And so that is why... CB1 activation or inactivation has those effects because that's where those receptors are. Motivated part of your brain, so the hypothalamus, and then the memory part of your brain in the hippocampus. That is a great so breakdown. we're really targeting like a mental, emotional approach to eating because a lot of people maybe don't know true hunger or aren't truly hungry. And it's just, how do we look yes. to the brain and... And learning that difference between hunger and craving is a big part of what our clients go through. Like many of our clients are, do have that disconnected sense where like they don't feel connected to their hunger anymore, or like don't know what hunger feels like or when they're hungry or whether they are hungry or having a craving and the coaching again, in combination with the mints, because the mints can kind of knock down the craving and let them the difference like oh this is what it's like without craving this is what a day is like with craving they can learn how that vocabulary maps on to their lived experience so i know with the coaching it sounds like you lead with more of the fasting protocols do you at any point get into like which foods to eat like personalizing that or is it really more like learning your hunger learning your cravings how to fast using the mint to overcome I mean, the cravings is that like the yeah we tend to stay away from nutrition just because it is such a complicated topic. And yeah. to the degree that we give nutrition advice, it is about learning what foods you find satisfying and what foods you find filling. So okay. intermittent fasting, especially this like daily intermittent fasting is much more sustainable if at least once a day or every time you eat, you have a fully satisfying meal. And you can't do that if you don't know what foods you find satisfying. And again, the same way that most people are out of touch with their hunger, they're out of touch with all of the other aspects of their appetite. Uh, and so eating a meal and then checking in two hours later, how do I feel? What do I feel? Where do I feel it? And drawing your attention to those sensations feeds back, you know, so it helps you learn explicitly which foods you find satisfying. And it also helps you learn intuitively which foods you find satisfying so that when you feel a certain way and then you eat and then you feel a different way, your subconscious can put together that pattern of like a sensed need an action and a payout or not on that sensed need. Does that make sense? This is sort of like intuitive yeah. eating ideology. Yeah. I was just going to say yeah. that this is like the approach to intuitive eating, which we're all like yes. hoping to get as close to as possible, but it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. And so we, we try to stay away from the prescriptive, like the, you know, I can't tell you what you need to eat. Like literally like it, it's just not possible. Like we know, yeah. you know like what slurry we need to feed someone is in a coma. But like, I can't tell you what you need to eat. Yeah, yeah. That's my favorite question from clients. What should I eat? And I say, what would you like to eat? Yeah, <laughs> like nine yeah. times out of 10, yeah. they laugh. They're like, oh, you're funny. I'm like, really? <laughs> yeah. really, what do you want to eat? And I don't know if you see this, but I think a big commonality that I see in clients that end up not being compliant long-term, or we can just say not successful, is that they're forcing themselves to eat things that they don't inherently enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. Or they're exerting a lot of effort to like avoid things. And again, they're so in their head about it. Like, I don't, I don't mean to 
trivialize that as a neuroscientist, the things that are in your head, I find very important, but like people are very in their head about like their shoulds and shouldn'ts about food. And like, if you want chocolate cake, let's say it this way. If you think you want chocolate cake, eat the chocolate cake and see if it makes you feel better. I think that you will find very often that it does not like, and in fact does not. And like doing that, like giving yourself permission to eat the chocolate cake and then noticing that it doesn't make you feel better is how you teach your automatic self that I don't actually want that. Whatever it was I was feeling, chocolate cake was not the solution because I checked and it didn't work. I tried it and I checked and it didn't work. Yeah. yeah. A lot of trial and error with that. I think that that's great because you know I have a long history of an eating disorder. I've overcame it over 10 years ago, but over the years I have found, you know, if I am craving a piece of chocolate, you know, for years I would go in the fridge and I would just eat everything around the chocolate. I'm not going to eat the chocolate. I'm not going to eat the chocolate. I'll, just, I'll eat the yogurt and I'll eat the apple and I'll eat. And then the end of the night, I would eat the darn chocolate. Anyways, if I had just skipped all that and eaten a bite of the chocolate, and then like you said, ask myself, was that satisfying? Probably would have been at the time instead of trying to avoid and that's it. That's fine. And that's also like, that's also fine. Like, yeah, I, I, I have it. a firm conviction. Yeah, I have a firm conviction that if people get in touch with their appetite, they will not end up in an unhealthy place. Like this is, you know, when you read the intuitive eating literature, they kind of dance around this. Like they don't want to talk about food as a source of health or disease because that ideology is like what fucks so many people up and like why so many people need intuitive eating. But I still have this conviction that if you get in touch with your appetite, you're not going to end up with a unhealthy diet. Like you're not going to end up with a disease causing diet if you get in touch with your appetite. And like people yeah. don't like saying that part out loud, but like, I, I believe it. Gosh, oh, I, I believe totally that agree. too. But then there's like this stubborn part of the brain. Like Renee said, it was like, I just was going to crave the chocolate until I had the chocolate. And then for some people that's enough, but then for some people it kicks them into this cycle of always eating it. Do the myths the, help the with that in. stubborn piece? It, so the myths do help with the craving, right? They help with that. Like, I'm not actually hungry this is all in my head kind of craving. And so does the checking in afterwards. So like the trial and error, you have to live the error. Like you can't, you're not going to be able to change your behavior and like change what you want without like wanting, indulging the want and seeing if it answered whatever part of your body or your mind was calling out for something. Your body sends some signal to your mind and you hear, I want chocolate cake. And then you eat the chocolate cake and it didn't help. And then you learn like whatever it was, it wasn't chocolate cake wasn't the solution to it. And like, <laughs> maybe you'll figure and then you do this enough times, you'll figure out what it was that your body was actually asking for. But there'll be a lot of like right. chocolate cake in the meantime. Yeah. <laughs> Until we learn. Right. That's okay. And that's Practice okay. On the yeah. chocolate cake. Maybe it was you needed to talk to your spouse about something. Sometimes people <laughs> fill the void with chocolate cake. Yeah. So yeah. trial and error. So I'm curious with the the different categories, the hunger, the craving, the satiety and fullness, is it like a scale of zero to 10 that people are scoring how they feel? Yeah. So in our app, people report back to their coach, these sort of, they report back on these levels. I think it's maybe one to five, maybe one to 10 scale in the app, but yeah, okay. they're, they're, they're reporting these up to the, up to the coach that they're, you know, they're scoring those on so that yeah. they can have then when it's time to talk to the coach, they can have a conversation about what a five felt like. And if their meal sort of answered that craving and what their satiety was like after the meal. That's awesome. I love the yeah, breakdown of that. Fascinating. It sounds just so helpful. Anything else you can share just about temper and the, and the program that would be useful for the audience? If this is January, I think we're having a new year, new you sale. So come check us out on the website. Come meet your coach. Use temper.com, U-S-E-T-E-M-P-E-R.com um, to get hooked into a coach get the app and get some mints to help stick to those habits that if it's mid-January right now, you might be struggling with. Do you have to do the coaching to use the mints? Can you use the mints? We only sell it as a bundle. There are, there are some people who have politely told the coach, like, thank you, but no, thank you. But like, we only sell it as a kit because we think that more people than realize, like get value from the coaching. So, I appreciate that. Yeah. Then you're not, you know, selling a magic pill. There is no magic pill, right? Yeah. Like yeah. everyone wants a magic pill. There is no magic yeah. pill. It takes effort. 
There are things we can do to help make that effort easier. There are things we can do to help you not go down the wrong alleys on your way up that mountain, but no one but you can climb that mountain. Yeah. I love that. I think that's great you combine them because it's like, we we still need to change the behavior at the end of the day. And that's what you're doing with the coaching. And then when the mint is needed, it's there. So we appreciate what you're doing and think it's really exciting and going to help a lot of people, especially in the new year. Definitely go check them out. Well, Dawn, before we let you go, we want to ask one final question. Can you give our audience a final piece of advice, something they can start doing today to optimize their health? Yeah. Get, get in touch with your gut. Like have that conversation, have those check-ins with yourself and figure out how to have that conversation with your body. You, you don't need a coach to get started. Coach will help. Coach will make it go faster, but you can start right now uh, having that conversation with yourself. Great. I think that's so valuable. I just wanted to share. I had one client that basically her whole life was restricting and she never ate anything that she enjoyed or felt satiety from. And so I, her homework was to take herself to lunch and like look at the menu and really take in what she wanted. And it was like her brains fell out of her head. She was like, what do you mean? I can just I can just listen to my body and order something that I want, like not just get the salad that I always get. Salad with the grilled chicken. Yeah. It's novel for some people. I think that's really valuable to listen to your body. And mm-hmm. get. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you for that advice. Everyone listening, if you want to check out the show notes for today's episode, we will put all of the links. We have Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, TikTok, all of those good things and the website. And uh, definitely check out the January new year, new you sale. So thank you for sharing that. And anything else before we close out? No, thank you for having me. Good luck to everyone out there. Awesome. Oh, and thank you for joining us. And also thanks to everyone for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Love this episode of the Biohacker Babes podcast? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. We truly appreciate your support. Until then, happy biohacking. This podcast offers health, fitness, and nutritional information and is designed for educational purposes only. You should not rely on this information as a substitute for, nor does it replace professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you have any concerns or questions about your health, you should always consult with a physician or other healthcare professional.